You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Well, good morning and welcome to Review Church Online. We're so glad that you're connecting with us this morning. Now, this is actually the second message of our There Is Hope series. And there is hope because Jesus is a reality and not a metaphor and not simply a moral guide or something like that. He is a present reality. He's not an illusion or an illustration or an analogy. He's not a trope or a symbol or a figure of speech, but a living, breathing reality in our lives right here and right now. And for that reason, there is hope. Now, I'll take you off on a curveball for a second, because when the economy tanks, as we've really seen happen this year, like it needs an injection, it needs a stimulus, it needs something to get it moving again to provoke growth. I think they call that quantitative easing. I'm not entirely sure, but it's a calculated hope. But the thing is, and we all know this, somebody will have to pay for that eventually. All the money that we've spent this year on uh, furlough and things like that will have to be paid back. And you know it's going to land at our feet. Somebody has to pay. And here's the thing, that hope is bought at a price. Always. No exceptions. Now, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, like that economy, this has been a bankrupting year for us. It has taxed us heavily. I mean, you look at some of the losses, job losses, relational losses, loss of confidence, clarity and certainty, and even the loss of cordiality in places, leading to a loss of community. And all of this kind of amplifies to make us question our purpose, our value. And so there are feelings of being unloved or undervalued or unrequired and unwanted. And this is a hard place for our hearts to be. I mean, the list goes on and on and it weighs heavy and it has even shaken the prospect of recovery in our minds. We can't really perceive what recovery will look like. And the thing is, this isn't new to mankind. I want you to know that. This isn't unusual this year. As, as weird as it's been for us, as, as unusual as it's been for us, it's not unprecedented. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 1, the wise Solomon says, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. In fact, he goes on to say, there is nothing new under the sun. There have been pandemics before. There have been economical crashes before. There have been emotional, relational crashes before. And we need a similar kind of injection to the economy, something that is able to overshadow the doubt and the fear and the uncertainty. We need hope of an eye-watering kind of value. And, and this isn't hope simply that things get to improve in the here and now. Like as long as I can get that injection in my arm, everything goes back to normal. That's not a great hope. You know, it's not hope that there are better times around the corner or that my lottery numbers come in or that I find that job, that relationship or buy that house. You know, there, there is no there. There's no like if I can only get to that point, everything will work out and be better. It's smoke and mirrors. It doesn't exist. At best, these kind of hopes are temporary, temporary fulfillment, temporary peace, temporary happiness. And you know this is true. 
And yet we keep trying to fool ourselves with this. If only, if only, if only. Thing is, we need something bigger, something more certain, something more fulfilling, more lasting, but hope is bought at a price, always. Somebody has to pay for this. But I've got great news, joyful, wonderful news for you this morning, and that's that the hope that we have as believers it is bigger. It is bigger than all other hopes put together. And it is the good news about Jesus Christ because he is both the payment for the hope and the substance of the hope itself. So there is hope because Jesus is a reality and not a metaphor. But how is Jesus perceived? Like over to you, what do you think? Like, how do you see Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Who do you think that he is? And the reality is that many people on our doorsteps live their lives in the belief that Jesus is or was like fiction, fable or fantasy. Something like Icarus and Daedalus or Achilles or Robin Hood or Ebenezer Scrooge. But listen, look, there's so much evidence of the existence of Jesus as a man that very few sensible scholars, experts and historians would refute that claim that he existed, that he didn't exist at all. Hardly anyone would say that. But then many would go on to say that they would see him merely as a historical character who maybe said and did some great, wonderful things that are worth exemplifying. Or some people see him as like a metaphorical model of moral goodness, something to aspire to, to live a good life. And I have to be honest, sadly, there are some who would call themselves Christians, believe maybe themselves to be Christians, for whom that is also true. They don't consider Jesus to be a present reality. So many people see Jesus just as a religious metaphor or a fiction Look, there are metaphors, there are analogies, there are tropes, there are symbols, there are figures of speech in the Bible. They exist. Here's one of them. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. Psalm 84 verse 11. It's not saying that God is a ball of fire in the sky and a piece of metal that you hold in front of you in a battle, but it's saying something about his character, something about who he is. Another one, we are the clay and you are the potter, Isaiah 64.8. This isn't saying that I'm like morph from art attack or whatever, that I'm literally a lump of clay that God like moulds around as a potter, but it is saying something about how God interacts with us in our lives that we are the work of his hands. And many of these figures of speech, many of these metaphors are used to describe something of the reality of who Jesus is. And here's one example that Jesus used himself. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Now, Jesus is clearly not saying that his makeup is flour and water and a little bit of yeast, you know, baked for the right amount of time at the right temperature that we can eat. Of course, he's not saying that, but he's saying he has such value that spiritually speaking, if we feed in him, we will never go spiritually hungry. So there are metaphors in the Bible, but Jesus is not 
one of them. His conception, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection and his ascension in glory into heaven. That is not metaphorical. It's not a figure of speech. It's not a fictional story, but a living reality. Now we're going to get straight into scripture now and we're going to go to Luke uh, chapter 2 verses 8 to 20. Grab your Bibles, but this will come up on your screens as well. And the thing here is that this story, it's, it's the famous one of the shepherds. You know, you've sung the song while shepherds wash their socks by night. Well, this is the story of that carol, really. And it follows on from the, the account of Jesus's birth at the beginning of that chapter. So we're going to jump in at verse eight. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Remember that from last week. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. You know, his favour rests upon you today. That is incredible. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So this morning, I want to cover three main points, really. Firstly, that this account that I've just read is not allegorical. Second, that, that a fiction cannot bring a real sense of hope. And then thirdly, that a figure of speech cannot bring about a life kind of transformation. So firstly, this account is not allegorical. Now, a couple of points I want you to consider here. Firstly, the shepherds, okay? If, if there were falsehoods or embellishments in this story, you know, kind of if it was designed for a political or religious agenda, why would the writer choose to have the shepherds be the first people to whom the birth of this king is announced. I mean, the birth of future kings, the birth of saviours is announced with kind of pomp and ceremony to dignitaries, to, to royalty, to leaders, to the powerful, the influential, not shepherds. I mean, shepherds who are a dirty, working class, kind of sleeping in the fields type of people, shepherds. Why would you put that into the story? Why put that detail in? But the angel declares to them, born unto you, to the shepherds, ordinary people to represent all people. 
And then the angels, consider this. Okay, now for some of you, this might be a bit of a stretch. Even for some believers, this can be a bit of a stretch. But the angels are not a metaphor either. Yes, I am saying what you think I'm saying. I am saying that I believe that the angels are a reality too. Look, consider this. When has a metaphor ever terrified people? Made people afraid right there in the moment. And not just ordinary people we're talking about here, but shepherds who, who were used to fighting off dangerous wild animals and marauding violent thieves. These were toughened men. Like, why would they be terrified by a metaphor? So you might say perhaps they witnessed some incredible natural phenomena that just took place, like, I don't know, crazy lightning or something like that. Well, OK, but when has thunder or lightning ever spoken so clearly, enunciated so precisely and accurately today in the town of David, that's Bethlehem, a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger? I mean, who puts a baby in a manger, for goodness sake? When has thunder and lightning ever been able to give people directions? And then later, the shepherds, they praise God, as we've just seen, because they found everything to be exactly as they had been told. And then consider that this wasn't an isolated angelic event, that recently an angel had appeared to Zechariah, another angel had appeared to, to Mary, and now to the shepherds. So three times Nobody's heard from angelic messengers for over 400 years. And now all of a sudden there are three separate occasions in, in a short space of time. And all of these were recorded accounts. And so if the angels are real, then if this account is real, then surely the words they speak and the news that they bring is also real and reliable, credible. I mean, consider this, an illustration in and of itself cannot bring tidings of great joy, like to all people. You could hear a funny heartwarming story, but we're not talking about tidings of great joy to all people. No one praises and glorifies a figure of speech. They cannot be praising a metaphorical God. If the angels are real, then God surely is real. Nobody praises a metaphorical God for taking on flesh and living as a man among men and for mankind. They are praising God because this baby is the Christ. At last, the anticipated Messiah, who will change everything, has arrived. And he will lead his people, and that is all who believe upon his name, which can include you and me as well. He will lead his people out of spiritual captivity and back into a right, restored relationship with God. Through the waters of rescue where he will flood and defeat our mortal enemies of sin and death. That is our hope. That is what we believe as Christians. That is why we can say there is hope. Now my second point today is this, that a fiction cannot bring real hope. Like referring to death, which none of us by the way can avoid however much we try, like Paul the apostle tells us that we don't grieve in the same manner as those who have no hope, because we have hope, we have that hope in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says. Brothers and sisters, 
We do not want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. That's a big statement, isn't it? Who have no hope? Yeah, but I'm hoping for this. I'm hoping for this. No, because you're going to still be led down the path to death eventually, like everybody else. So therefore, no hope without Christ. For we believe that Christ Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring uh, with Jesus all those who have fallen asleep in him. There is hope beyond the grave for us. Now, how rubbish is our hope if Jesus isn't everything that the Bible reveals him to be? like everything he said he was and is, if he's just a metaphor, if he's just a, met a, a, a metaphorical kind of moral guide, then our hope really sucks. Like, there's a psychological argument here that belief in and of itself is a powerful thing that can sustain people, that can give people a sense of hope. I, I've got an atheist doctor who's a friend of mine who lives back in Paul. Uh, and we love to chat theology, we love to debate about this kind of stuff, and we're diametrically opposed in what we believe. But he does find that my role as a pastor is valuable. He appreciates it, he thinks it should be there, because it gives people a sense of hope and a sense of purpose. And in his mind, that's a good thing, right? But listen, belief or hope in and of itself is not enough. Like, the belief or hope that I'm intelligent or clever, it doesn't actually make that a reality. It doesn't make me intelligent or clever. Or the belief that I'm funny doesn't actually mean that I'm actually funny. Okay, you might be arguing that, yes, confirmation bias means that I will see myself as funny, even if there's no evidence to prove that. I'll see what I want to see. So consider then some more substantial kind of realistic kind of hopes. What about the hope or belief that I'm wealthy? Like, that won't make me wealthy, even if I think that my bank account is full, that's not going to make it a reality. Or the, even the reality, or even the hope that I could become wealthy, it doesn't mean that I'm going to follow that path and actually become wealthy. You know, I cannot believe or hope away cancer or COVID or even a common cold unless there is substance to that belief or hope. I can't believe away anything or I can't believe into existence anything unless there is substance behind my belief and my hope. I need a guarantor. Otherwise, my hope is just an empty account, like completely bankrupt and powerless and unable to achieve or sustain anything for me. And so, therefore, my hope would become pointless or worse than that, laughable, foolish. Like you might be thinking those poor, deluded Christians. But again, Paul says this, that if Jesus isn't who he says he is, then we're to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Nobody's paid anything for you. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. You know, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, you're not going to see your relatives again. If only for this life he goes on, we have hope in Christ, then we are to be, uh, we of all people, are to be the most pitied. Like if Jesus isn't who we say he is, what are we doing? We're just wasting our time with vanity and fake hope. So the third thing that I want to say this morning about this is that a figure of speech cannot bring about transformation in our lives. 
like the shepherds, ordinary people going about their ordinary work in their ordinary lives, have an extraordinary encounter with an extraordinary announcement within it that completely changes their direction for forever, really. I mean, there they are, minding their own business in the field. These angels turn up, they drop a bombshell on them, and the shepherds leave what they've got there and say, let's go and find this Jesus, find this saviour in that manger. I mean, there are amazing accounts of miraculous transformation in the Bible. Consider these. Moses, a murderer, and yet goes on to lead God's people out of slavery. Gideon, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. He's terrified, but becomes a mighty man of valour and brings freedom from oppression to the people, which God does through him. Zacchaeus, that little short guy, the tax collector that everyone hated, up the tree. You know, dishonest guy. He has an encounter with Jesus, he follows Jesus, is radically changed and gives back everything that he owes, and then some as well. And then the account of Saul, who becomes Paul. In an instant, he goes from whip to worshipper. Like, he punished people for their profession of Christ and then becomes a central advocate figure for this gospel. What a transformation. In our own history, there's a guy called Nicky Cruz. He was a violent gang member in the 50s in New York. He encountered Jesus and was radically changed and became a preaching evangelist, a banner of good news. Brian Greenaway, a guy who was in the Portsmouth chapter of the Hells Angels, a murderous, angry, violent man, and yet has an encounter with Christ and becomes Christ's ambassador, becomes one of his angels instead. And then there's the countless previously addicted and broken men and women who have gone through Teen Challenge and Hope House to encounter Christ and then find freedom and transformation that lasts, that is sufficient, that is enough. And then if that's not enough, there's me. Look at me. Look at yourself, perhaps. Like, my messed up childhood left me broken and angry. I became destructive, even murderous in my intentions. I became deceitful. I even told my sisters that I had a child. I didn't have a child. I have no children. But I told my sisters that I did. Why? I don't know. I became manipul manipulative to get what I wanted, be it reputation or cash or sexual gratification. You know, I put up walls around myself to protect myself at the expense of everybody else around me. And then I had a transformative encounter at the age of 20 with Jesus Christ that changed the entire trajectory of my life. Now, listen, I wasn't changed by a concept. I was not changed by a religion hated religion. I was not changed by a moral choice or a determination, but by Jesus Christ, who is not a metaphor, but a living, breathing reality. I was transformed by believing upon the good news about Jesus, which is the power of God for my rescue, or the biblical word for that is salvation. Like, I don't live my life now based upon a code, or based upon a theory, or based upon a worldview, but I live my life now fueled by his power at work in me through the Holy Spirit who is at work in me and in all who believe. So listen, as we come towards wrapping up, I just want to give you opportunity to respond to this. Believer or non-believer, this demands a response from us, really. What do you think? What, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you say he is? 
Although if you think that he is only historical character, like a metaphor or a moral exemplar, like a good kind of set of rules for a good life, to be a good person, then there is no hope to be found there. I promise you, if that's all Jesus is, it's hopeless. There's nothing that we can offer you because you would still face the, the inevitable reality of life. That's this, that all people are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Everything that we have is fragile and temporary at best. You might feel successful if you're financially stable right now. You might feel secure in your job, but that might give you a, a sense of purpose and value. You, you might get some kind of giddy sense of moral goodness if you learn to forgive people in this life, or if you're a generous character, you give to charity or whatever, or you consider yourself to be morally upright. Like, but by whose standard? Whose standard are you morally upright by? By whose standard are you generous? By whose standard are you forgiving? Like you might be proud of the fact that you're a good parent, a good brother, a sister, a friend, that you're fair, you're loyal, you're wise, you're always around. But all of this, listen, however tall our castle or however wide our estate is temporary and ultimately we will all face death. You know, that government motif was wrong. We don't save lives. It's not within our power. It's not a power of parliament. It's not within reach of community action. It's not even within the power of a doctor or a rescue worker. We do not save lives. Even when we say we're saving lives at sea or whatever, we're not. We don't save lives. We prolong life. Uh, and if there's no real hope, for what purpose do we prolong life? Why are we so desperate to cling to it if there is nothing, if there is no purpose to it or beyond it? You know, only desperately perhaps trying to offset the inevitable because we're terrified by what comes next. Or maybe we're not afraid of death. Maybe we're not afraid of what comes next, but we've hit the forlorn acceptance. I'm just a bag of DNA that will cease to exist in, in, a, in a conscious state one day. And that's our lot in life, so boom, wow. That's hopeless. There is no hope in that. If Jesus is not a present reality, if he is just a religious metaphor or a fiction or a historical character or a moral example, then there is nothing that we as a church, as believers, can offer you uh, because the basis, the, the rock steady foundation of the hope that we have is in the fact that Jesus Christ is not a metaphor he is a present reality but there is hope there is hope it is real peter goes on to say in the very next verse from that one about the flowers and the grass he says but the word of the lord endures forever unperishable it is true it is faithful so our hope is upon the rock solid basis that Jesus is who the Bible reveals him to be, who he says he is, not a fairy tale, not a fantasy, not a fanatic, uh, and not a fanatic's mandate. Hope is bought at a price always, and there is hope because, and I'm closing with this, God the Son 
clothed himself in flesh and lived among us. Our hope is that he fulfilled the requirements of the law on our behalf, that he died in our place and paid for our sin and credited his righteousness into our account. That's the stimulus, that's the provoker of growth, that he was raised to life and in doing so has the power also to raise us, you and me, to new life as new creations, imperishable even as our current bodies will fail. In the same way that he led his people from captivity in Egypt and into the spacious and plentiful place through the waters of death where he defeated once and for all those mortal enemies of sin and death. He did this in the same way there is hope. There is hope for you. There is hope for me. And now if you're a believer, does the way you live or at least the way you intend to live reflect the reality of what we claim to believe? As somebody said, and I forget who, so please forgive me, if you were charged for your faith in Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Christian, live your life in the reality that Jesus is who he says he is. And that truth should impact your life. It should impact your decisions, your activities, your outlook and your relationships. But if you're not a believer this morning, seek the Lord while he may be found. We at Riverview Church, we'd love to introduce you to him. This is not a fiction, a fantasy or a fallacy. There is hope. There is only hope because Jesus is who the Bible claims him to be. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Come, let us adore him. Amen. Amen.